The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and today we're here for a roundtable episode that I had doubts, honestly, that we would ever record. After 12 years of struggle, the Casio tracks have been removed from streaming platforms around the world. At present, you can log into Apple Music or Spotify and search for the Michael album, and you will find the album with seven genuine songs and not the three fake Michael Jackson songs that we call the Casio tracks. We know that three songs on Michael's first posthumous album were forgeries created by Eddie Casio, James Port, and an imposter vocalist for the purpose of fooling the estate, Sony Music, and fans. Well, they didn't. There's been a long, hard battle in the public domain and the courts, thanks to fan Vera Sarova. Obviously, what we're seeing at the moment is the result of that battle. Sony Music and the estate have decided to remove those fake songs, hopefully once and for all. And because of that, we've assembled a roundtable panel here today to discuss this breaking news, including friends of the show, Damien Shields, Charles Thompson, Summer Habib, James L.A., and Dan Vigilobos. So let's get right into it. Damien, author, podcaster from the Gold Coast, Australia, and one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet about the history of the Casio tracks. Welcome back to the MJ Cast. How are you doing? I'm very well, um, very excited, very happy, kind of lost for words a little bit. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's, it's, we're still kind of all responding and reacting to, to what just happened. How many hours ago at this point did these songs come down? I think it was 30, 36 hours ago, I think. 36 hours ago. Just, just nuts. Award-winning investigative journalist from England and friend of the show, Charlie Thompson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, buddy. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. You okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. It's pretty late there for you though, right? Uh, it's 10 to 11. 10 yeah. to 11. <laughs> well, let's get into it. So, hopefully, you can have a good night's sleep still. And Summer Habib, friend of the show from London, you haven't been on the MJ cast for, for a little bit now, but welcome back. It's always amazing to talk to you. Hi, Jamin. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me back on. Also, we've got longtime friend of the show from Ohio, James L.A. James, welcome back to the MJ cast. I think you're pr- pretty much the most consistent uh, personality on our roundtable episodes, and it's great to have you back on this one again to dig into the Casio tracks. Hey, guys. Thank you, and congratulations, everyone. Yes. What a moment. What a moment. And last but not least, audio engineer and producer from London, Dan Vigilobos, friend of the show. It's great to have you back. How are you? Hey, Jamin. Hey, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. I'm excited and shocked like everybody else. Yeah, I don't think any of us really thought that this this day would come in the way that it has. It was all so sudden. And even to this moment, we still don't really have any kind of official 
proper statement from Sony and the estate. We do have a statement from their online team in response to a fan site that we'll get into a little bit later, but it's still all just emerging and also fresh. These songs have come down. It's been a long, hard-fought battle. We need to dig into why this is going on and what's happened. So let's start by going through the basics of the case and who the people involved were, especially for the benefit of our listeners who may not know the ins and outs of actually what went on. In late 2010, Sony and the Michael Jackson estate released Michael Jackson's first posthumous album called Michael. It actually happened quite quickly after Michael passed away in hindsight. It sort of seems like a bit of an eternity between This Is It and the Michael album, but in reality it was uh, not very long at all. Uh, The album itself features three songs by an imposter vocalist. And alarm bells were raised by a range of Jackson family members and collaborators even before the album came out. The three tracks in question are called the Casio tracks and are Breaking News, Keep Your Head Up and Monster. And the songs were collaborated on by Eddie Casio and James Port and later remixed for inclusion on the album by producers such as Teddy Riley and Tricky Stewart. Since that time in 2010, almost immediately after, in fact, and then since then until now, fans have been campaigning to have the tracks removed. And Vera Sarova has been fighting in the Californian court system for the same aim. Let's talk about who's involved. We'll zoom right into ground zero. So often when people talk about this fraud, three names spring to mind immediately. Eddie Cassio, James Port and the alleged vocalist, Jason Malachi. I actually think there's four people closely connected in this situation, and and I would say a fourth member is Stuart Brawley, who we'll talk about soon. Eddie Cassio was a long-time, 25-year friend of Michael Jackson. Not unlike people like Macaulay Culkin or Brett Barnes, uh, Michael grew close to the Cassio family, who reside in New Jersey. From memory, Michael Jackson first came into contact with the Cassio family in the early 80s during the Thriller era, when he would go to New York and stay at the exquisite tower suites at the Helmsley Palace Hotel. The Cassio family father, Dominic Cassio, managed those suites and formed somewhat of a friendship with Michael over time. And that led into Michael then getting to know the rest of the Cassio family. And so this kind of sparked a friendship. You know, th- these kids would travel with Michael on various world tours. Uh, Michael would go and stay at the house to kind of escape the celebrity spotlight on occasion. And, and Michael grew pretty close to to the kids, especially uh, Eddie Cassio and Frank Cassio. There's you know, limitless number of photos of Michael hanging out with the kids on tour and all of that sort of thing. Eddie sort of took up piano uh, at a young age and Michael encouraged that. And eventually he evolved into a music producer to some degree. And we know that he was working on music for Michael Jackson, even as far back as the Invincible era. And, and a lot of this detail will come out in Faking Michael. I had the opportunity to actually interview Eddie Cassio. He was meant to be the first guest, actually, on the MJ cast, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about later in the um, the episode here today. But uh, a lot of the detail around his early years of working with Michael are in that interview and will eventually come out in the Faking Michael podcast. 
Second player involved is James Port. And James Port is a recording engineer, producer, songwriter, and singer originally from Tennessee. And without going too much into his background, he ended up managing the Hit Factory recording studios around the time of the Invincible era also. And he ended up going on to work with people like Luther Vandross and and Boys to Men. At some point, formed a relationship with Eddie Cassio, and their skills kind of merged together into a writing duo who were preparing songs for Michael Jackson to hopefully eventually record. And and my thought has always been that Michael would have been, especially when staying in that New Jersey, uh, in in the Casio family basement uh, in late 2007, would probably have been encouraging that songwriting and and that, that material. I'm not sure how directly involved he really was, but I'm sure there was some kind of engagement there. And, and Eddie and James were working towards Michael eventually recording those songs. But we know what happened. Michael passed away uh, in June 2009 before he could get to London to perform the This Is It concerts and therefore was never able to really record the songs that Eddie and James always wanted. The third player to talk about is called Jason Malachi. That's not his actual name. His real name is Jason Capetta. Uh, he's a police officer from Maryland. He's infamous in the community for being a singer who sounds uncannily like Michael Jackson. I probably wouldn't go as far as actually calling him a a vocal impersonator, uh, although many probably would, but he is a singer that sounds a lot like Michael and has leveraged that uh, very specific skill set to fool audiences into thinking he really is Michael Jackson. And that certainly happened in late 2007 when his song Mama Cita came out, uh, while Michael was interestingly staying with Eddie Cassio at that time. And uh, a lot of the fan community thought that was really Michael Jackson, was really a leak. And uh, M- Michael obviously famously disputed that through a press release, I think, at the time. And it is he that many in the fan community believe is the vocalist on these three Casio tracks, mainly because the vocal qualities that exist on those lead vocals match up with Jason's qualities. For example, his very unique vibrato much more than they match up with Michael's vocals. The fourth member that I I want to raise is Stuart Brawley, and he was a recording engineer who worked with Michael Jackson during the Invincible sessions again, and he had a specific talent for comping vocals together. He often worked on songs in terms of getting that final vocal arrangement done, famously worked on that threatened rap that Rodney Jerkins and, and Michael wanted, the Rod Serling rap. Uh, and, and that's really his specific talent. And he was brought on board to the Angelicson production team. Angelicson is the name that is associated with the James Port and Eddie Cassio production company. And, and Stuart was, I guess, contracted on by them after the vocals for the Cassio tracks were tracked. And we know Stuart's involvement was quite heavy because he even revealed in, in interviews like in Rolling Stone, and, and I'll quote here, that his job was to make Michael sound like Michael. So I, I would imagine that the vocal tracks w- were laid down with sound-alike vocals to start with, and then Stuart's job was probably to place those Michael ad-libs from legitimate Michael recordings in there to really flesh out the sound and make it sound like Michael. Now, they're the key players. That's the time period. That's the forgery that we're talking about. Uh, The songs were obviously sold to the Michael Jackson estate. It's up for debate how much research the estate actually did. But nevertheless, they were sold uh, against the wishes of Michael's family and and lots of other uh, different players as well. Let's zoom out to a second level. 
And that's that's where you've got a lot of people who serve to actually legitimize the songs. People like Teddy Riley and Tricky Stewart, famous music producers who remixed the songs for inclusion on the Michael album. You've got writers like Roger Friedman and Joe Vogel who were publicly saying the songs were legitimate to add more weight to what the estate were trying to do. And then, of course, you've got people that worked at Sony in the estate, people that ran the the online team like Jeff Jampol, all involved in legitimizing what was going on. And then you zoom out one level even further and you've got prominent fans in the community who harbored their own private doubts and decided to side with the estate and support that official narrative, regardless of what the family and the collaborators were saying about the, the dubious vocals. So that's the whole big picture in a nutshell lots of fine detail to dig into though listening to the faking michael podcast which is yet to come let's now turn our attention to what's really gone on over the last 36 hours i guess what i'll hand over to damien to kick this off just just because you've done so much extensive research about this topic what was the landscape like before 36 hours ago or whatever it was compared to what happened so how far are we dialing back here? Because obviously, context-wise, the songs have been in the public domain officially released on the Michael album since December of 2010. In June of 2014, uh, the fan you mentioned earlier, Vera Sarova, filed a lawsuit against Sony, The Estate, Eddie Cassio, James Port, their production company. That's been in court now for eight years. Um, and the most recent development, which is the most relevant development, is that there was a hearing uh, on the 24th of May, which is five weeks ago from the recording date now, in which Sony and the estate argued that they shouldn't be a participant in this lawsuit based on several different reasons, which we can discuss later. And we are currently awaiting the Supreme Court to rule as to whether Sony and the estate should remain defendants in this case or whether they are dismissed and no longer defendants. So, Based on the fact that we haven't actually got a ruling yet, however, the songs have come down prior to that ruling even being made based on, you know, the assumption if we're being, you know, fair that there's a chance, even though I think it's a small chance, that they'll be dismissed and they'll be a ruling that could potentially say that they're actually allowed to do what they're doing. The fact that they've pulled them is very interesting. They haven't even been told to pull them yet. They haven't even been legally forced to do it. So it's a somewhat, the way it looks, it's somewhat of, of their own volition. But that's, you know, yet to be known. They haven't said why they've done it. They haven't spoken about it. Um, we haven't heard any reports about Vera's lawsuit and the Supreme Court hasn't ruled. So we're kind of in a little bit of a twilight zone. We, we don't really know what's What's going on? So, the songs are down, which is what we've been fighting for for 12 years. So, it's a victory either way. It doesn't really matter the context. We've, you know, cleaned Michael's discography of these forgeries, but um, a lot more to unfold about the why. So, that's where we're at right now. Um, back to you, Jamin, to continue the hosting, but that's that's technically the situation. Well, it makes me wonder how far up the line this went in Sony Music. Maybe this is giving them too much, <laughs> uh, I don't know, goodwill or, or 
agency here or whatever, but you know, like, is is it something where they they've decided in the in you know the camp that's the uh, the Sony and the estate camp in the lawsuit? Have they decided? Well, look, this is where we're going to go anyway. We're going to settle anyway. So let's just get these songs down. Maybe it went all the way up the line to the new. I can't remember her name, but Epic Records has a new CEO. Um, maybe she's just decided. Look, this has gone on too long. It's too controversial. Just get them down. Who knows? We don't know that sort of stuff. It'd be fascinating to learn it, though. Jamin, you mentioned there that uh, you weren't sure how far up the line these decisions went at Sony Music. But there is a part of me that actually is now thinking with the increased involvement of members of Michael's family, I think Prince Jackson has some sort of foot in the door at the estate now. And I wonder actually if their involvement has had anything to do with this decision. You ask how far up the line it goes. I wonder how far down the line the communication goes. The statement that came out yesterday from Chuck at the MJ online team, you know, seems to sort of assert an opinion on the matter. And it's sort of hard to process whether or not that's just the take of Chuck, or if that is the official position of the MJ estate, Sony, et cetera. Yeah, well, we saw that with um, the Thriller 40 artwork, where the artwork was uploaded by Walmart or somebody, and a fan sent it to the MJ Online team and said, is this the real artwork because it's terrible? And the MJ Online team responded and said, no, this is a spoof or a bootleg. It's some kind of fake artwork that's been made by fans. This is not something we would put out. And then literally a couple of hours later, it turned out that that was the real artwork. So it it appears that the MJ online team don't necessarily always know what they're talking about. So when that statement came out yesterday, it was hard to know what to make of it and how much stock to put in it. And I'm still not sure whether we should be accepting what the MJ online team have said as being truthful and accurate. We can only hope that it's not. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see whether a a more formal statement or a fuller statement is issued by the estate or Sony or somebody else down the line. Yeah, we're certainly going to dig into the details of that statement a little later uh, in the recording. Uh, But it, it it does read very, very odd. There's no doubt. It's not exactly how I think any of us imagined immediately after those songs came down that the estate and Sony would kind of posture what's gone on. It's been a really weird 48 hours. I don't know if you guys are with me on this, but uh, the feeling that I had when they came down originally was one of real, I guess celebrations, maybe not quite the right word so much because uh, it's a weird thing to be really happy about, (laughs) like after so much has gone on this past 12 years. But I definitely felt kind of like finally this is – kind of a victory for us. Uh, We never wanted these songs up there. It's been such a struggle. Michael's own family didn't want them up there. They came down and I was, it it was like a relief, like a sigh of it's finally done. It's, it's, it's over. Yes. And then uh, that feeling kind of just got replaced again with, with that same old frustration and and anger when the online team came out and sort of (laughs) decided to place well, first of all, not even discuss the authenticity 
but then place blame on the fans. And again, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, let's just do it now. This is the statement from from MJ Online team. They've got a new representative that works there that sort of handles the communications back and forth uh, between various fan groups that contact them. This guy's, I don't know his last name, but this guy's name is Chuck. I guess he came in to replace uh, Alicia, who used to be their online team person. Uh, and this is what he said in response to Greg Spinks, who runs the Behind the Mask fan site, fan forum. Hello, Greg. Great to be introduced to you. Chuck from the MJ Online team here. In response to your question, I can confirm that the three Casio tracks on the 2010 album Michael are no longer being made available by Sony Music for purchase or streaming, but I should point out that the removal of these three songs has nothing to do with their authenticity. The estate and Sony Music believe the continuing conversation about the tracks is distracting the fan community and casual Michael Jackson listeners from focusing their attention where it should be on Michael's legendary and deep music catalogue. The fans have so much to celebrate in 2022 and beyond with regards to the vibrant legacy of Michael Jackson. We believe Michael will continue to make many new first-time fans of all ages, but it is up to all of us as the MJ fam to focus on the things where we want the attention of those new to Michael Jackson's legacy to be. We hope you share your love of Michael with the world so that the MJ fam community continues to grow even further. For instance, fans may want to continue to share the success of MJ the Musical, which won four Tony Awards, including Best Lead Actor and Best Choreography, as was reported by AP and picked up by other media outlets. MJ saw the biggest bump in sales out of all Broadway shows the week after the Tony Awards and a US tour is kicking off in Chicago in July 2023. And of course, the immensely popular Michael Jackson One Show continues in Las Vegas. I am personally excited about the upcoming Michael Jackson biopic. I am also looking forward to the campaign to celebrate the 40th anniversary in November of Thriller, the biggest selling album in history. I hope you share my excitement with what's coming soon in the world of Michael Jackson. Please reach out to me with further comments or questions. We appreciate your email and continuing support of Michael Jackson and his incredible legacy. Thank you, Chuck, MJ Online team. So in a nutshell, they're kind of saying, um, yep, the songs are down. It's nothing to do with it, whether they're actually Michael Jackson or not. But don't worry about it. Just just put your attention over here on these other new products we're putting out and just just forget all about that other stuff to do with the fraud and go see the musical. And what they're also saying is it's fan blaming. It's gaslighting and fan blaming. They're pointing the finger at basically they identify the new fans are where they, their priorities lie. They want to create this like peaceful, beautiful environment for new fans to come in and enjoy Michael Jackson, blah, blah, blah. By doing that, they're dismissing the existing fans. They want to talk about the biggest selling album ever. Who made it the biggest selling album ever? The people who have been fans for decades. That's us, right? So, why don't we get a say in the matter? And if you want to trace it all the way back, like he basically makes out like we're bitching and whinging and that bitching and whinging is creating a negative environment for new fans. So, stop bitching and whinging and start celebrating all of our corporate uh, brand alliances and get out of the way of uh, blocking our money, basically. Our revenue stream is important and our brand relationships are important. So, stop talking about fake songs and start talking about all these other things. The thing is, 
we wouldn't have to talk about fake songs if they didn't release fake songs. This is their doing. They have done this. So, it's in their hands to actually solve it, which is remove the songs and concede that they're not Michael. Once that happens, we pretty much don't have anything to talk about anymore. But they've just kind of put their foot in it with this statement and basically said, no, it's nothing to do with your authenticity and stop talking about it. I think if you put this whole thing together and, you know, first of all, I like to, I think what we all wish for in the estate is that, um, I think what we ask for most is that there is a sort of master guiding hand who has this grander vision to the legacy. And even when there's disagreements between the two, I still try to sort of empathize and assume maybe that's the kind of caretaker they're trying to be where, no, 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 you don't know the master plan, you know, quiet down fans, let us do our thing. Let us, let us do the hologram. <laughs> let us, uh, let us do these corporate tie-ins. And for the most part, I think we're pretty cool about it. And I think for the most part, we would have actually really stood behind them if it weren't for such flagrant inauthenticity in the Michael album and these three tracks and such flagrant disrespect and disregard for our opinions, for our concerns, the concerns of the family and the whole relationship, unfortunately, it was actually off to a great start, I would say, um, posthumously with This Is It and all those moments. But the Michael album, specifically these three tracks, really threw that relationship off course. And here we are 12 years later, and there's a statement from them at a moment that could be a real peace offering. You know, uh, the tracks are down. We see our ways. Let's move on from here. Like that would be a beautiful thing to hear right now. But instead we're hearing, yeah, they're down, but you're still crazy. And, you know, I don't appreciate that, to be honest. Uh, James, I completely agree with you there. And and I think um, what, what's a bit confronting to me as a fan watching this is I had assumed that this would have been weighing heavily on Sony and the estate's mind over these 12 years, similarly to like it has to us. And I, I thought they may have been waiting for this opportunity to try and repair the relationship with the fans so we could all move forward together. And I really thought that that the moment the songs came down would be the moment that they would try to put some kind of proper statement out or something saying, look, we, we apologize. This, this was a mistake. It, it should not have happened. Uh, the songs are now down. Let's try to move forward together uh, in honor of Michael. Uh, celebrating products or, or or his art or something like that, and and I feel like this is a completely wasted opportunity. And I, and I know that the people <laughs> who are in charge of the estate obviously often don't have the best intentions for Michael Jackson. But I'm speaking them of them now as kind of a business entity, as a corporation. You would think as a corporation they would want to grasp this moment and use it to really repair the void that exists in the community. And they've completely wasted that opportunity now through this statement from Chuck, in my opinion. It's interesting, actually, because one of the first things I tweeted when I was having a conversation with Damien yesterday on Twitter about the estate's response, and I tweeted something along the lines of, there will be no contrition, there will be no apology, because they're, they're not in the business of contrition and apology. And their statement was so typical of their attitude towards the fans. I'm not even sure that I I can just talk about the fans really because the damage was so kind of wholesale. It took in the fans, it took in the family, 
it took in his Michael Jackson's children, and the damage is much greater than the songs. So them talking about we've taken these three songs down, nothing to do with the authenticity of them. The damage that those songs actually created, there was such a massive ripple effect of what those songs brought about that there's no way you're ever going to unpick it. The damage that was done to the Jackson family, you know, I, I talk about it quite a lot online that Michael Jackson was the most famous black man who ever lived. He was a victim of homicide. 12 months after he was killed, these songs were released. His family, his grieving family said, these are not Michael Jackson songs. Do not release these songs. And Sony Music and the estate ignored those pleas. They were asked not to release them. They ignored those pleas. And 12 years later, we are where we are. And the problem is the damage is done. You cannot unpick what happened. And what happened to the family, you know, we, we, were, we were watching online all unfold, you know, Terrell Jackson taken to Twitter and writing this, these streams of consciousness about what was actually taking place. And Terrell Jackson, you know, he's one of the nicest people you'd, you're ever likely to meet. He's got no, he's got no, you know, he's not the kind of guy who's going to kind of get angry and just spill, you know, his guts out on social media for no reason. But for him to have been so moved to have done that, and then Roger Friedman and TMZ basically kind of slating the family or, you know, internationally on, on news channels everywhere, everywhere you looked, it's, the damage is far greater than the songs. That's the problem. And it doesn't matter. Silently, quietly removing the songs is not going to fix the damage, unfortunately. There's no there's no way they, these people in charge are ever going to make the situation better. But of course, we should add that it's better to remove them than to not remove them, even though the damage can't be undone. It's a step in the right direction and it's something that we can say that 12 years of our um, ongoing efforts have resulted to something. It's not going to mend the broken hearts. It's not going to cause any huge amount of... The, the, the Jackson family aren't going to wake up today and go, wow, we forgive you for that. But it's something. But to, to be clear, it is a victory and it is something worth celebrating. We worked very hard as a fan community to get here. We should all be very proud. I think Michael would be very, very proud that here we are all these years later still working our asses off for, for, for his justice. Uh, it it's, is a pretty incredible moment for sure. Well, yeah, it always felt like a pipe dream. I was having this conversation with someone earlier today. I always felt compelled to fight for this and I did everything within my power to affect change to the situation, but I never actually believed it would come to this. I believe that we could affect change. I truly did believe we could affect change when we were fighting for these songs to not be released before they were actually released. You know, when we got breaking news on the on the 8th of November 2010 and we realized what situation we were dealing with and then we sparked into action, in that moment I thought, yes, on the 8th of November 2010, I called John Branker's office. They wouldn't put me through to him. They gave me his email. I sent him an email. I said, we need to talk immediately because this is a big problem and we need to stop it before it becomes a bigger problem. And it needs to be stopped because it's never going to end unless you stop it before it actually happens. I called executives at Sony Music. I said the same thing. And I'm not the only one who did that. Other people did the same thing. If they would have listened to us in that moment, 
we wouldn't be here 12 years later. They would say, hang on a second. We're about to make a crucial damaging mistake that's going to hurt our our business for all of eternity? Are we going to be burning bridges and breaking relationships that are, that we're going to need to have at some point? They didn't do that. They just said, oh, get out of here, you crazy bastards. If they even responded at all, they they were telling us to shut up. They either ignored us or told us to shut up. That was all the way back then. And so, after that, and it became clear that they didn't care and the songs did come out, I didn't ever believe that they would be taken down. But it didn't stop me from trying. (laughs) There was no way I was going to my grave wondering what would have happened if I would have spent the next 12 years or 15 years or 20 years or however long it took to get this result. Thankfully, there's a lot of other people out there that felt the same as me and collectively all of us together in all different corners of the world have pitched in in different ways and done the different things that we've done. That's from fans to former Michael collaborators to Jackson family members to other experts and different people who have all weighed in with different contributions to get us to the point where Sony Music clearly doesn't feel it's a viable thing to continue making these songs available to the public for whatever reason, which again, we don't know yet, but they have done this without anyone forcing them to. So, the pipe dream has become a reality and it's it's just so unbelievable that it's actually happened. And James, I agree with what you said. It, we, we should celebrate this moment. All the other damage is devastating and it's, it can never be undone like Samar said. But this is a moment where we have succeeded collectively. This is, it's a, this is a group thing of every single person who ever contributed five seconds of their time or 12 years of their time collectively all together. This is the outcome of that and we should pay a special tribute to Vera for taking it to the court and trying to fight for the justice legally and to go through the proper process and to come out the other end of the tunnel with this. I would just add something. You said that every time the estate engaged with the fans, they were either, well, they either ignored the fans or told them to shut up. But there was a third thing that they did which was that they bought some people's silence. There were certain prominent figures within the fan community who initially raised concerns about these songs and then very quickly stopped raising concerns about these songs and in fact became pretty aggressive supporters of the songs. And it coincided directly with certain favours being conferred upon those individuals like free trips to debuts of shows and things like that. And so when we're paying tribute to Vera for her tenacity in uh, pursuing what she thought was the right course of conduct through the courts and sticking with it for eight years as they kept filing motion after motion after motion to try to thwart and uh, suppress her, it's worth remembering that she did that against a backdrop also of an extremely divided and volatile fan community in which battle lines were drawn after certain individuals and platforms were essentially co-opted onto the other side of the argument. And there were a lot of attacks on people who raised concerns about these songs or expressed opinions that the songs were not legitimate. 
there were a lot of really aggressive, horrible attacks on fans. People saying, your negativity is stealing food out of the mouths of Michael Jackson's children. Every time you don't buy these songs or you encourage somebody else not to buy these songs or to boycott this album, you are damaging Michael Jackson's family and his children. Even though his children had raised concerns about the validity of the song. So this there's another element of damage here, which we've not mentioned yet, which it will be interesting to see whether that can be fixed, whether it can ever be undone. What will happen now? Well, we don't know what's going to happen next, but if what happens next is what we hope it will be, what will happen to that divide in the fan community? Where does that leave the fan community? which has been on two sides of a battleground here for the last 12 years, where some people were duped or co-opted or whatever into taking the wrong side of an argument. The whole notion of the uh, the co-opting and the, the persuading of fans to take a particular side, which is a side that the estate and Sony wanted to be the official narrative, is a really interesting conversation. And um, I would suggest to maybe pass over to Dan. We haven't heard Dan's voice yet in this conversation. Dan is one of the co-founders of uh, no longer existing, but at one time thriving and very, um, you know, wonderful Michael Jackson fan website called Maximum Jackson. And they were one of the targets of this co-opting and this persuasion. And the very people that we're receiving this statement from today, the MJ Online team, who have basically said, you guys are just a bunch of bitches whinging and you need to shut up and start talking positive about our corporate alliances, did the same thing in 2010 when we raised this issue before the songs were released. So, if I think I'm going to hand over to Dan to give a, a demonstration of how the zebra doesn't change its stripes uh, because this is the exact line that they used on us to try and silence us and to try and buy us prior to these songs actually being on a CD that could then defraud fans. So, hand over to you, Dan, and you can tell the the story of what happened when you and I and many other fans tried to reach out to the estate and got intercepted by MJ Online team and how they felt about us and our opinions that these songs shouldn't be released. Dan Villalobos. Yeah, so what I'm going to say sort of ties to what you were saying, Charles and Damien, um, about the division course in the fan communities and just the general gaslighting that occurred. So in 2010, so way back in the early days, I also emailed John Branker and the email was intercepted by the head of the MJ Online team, who is still the head of the MJ Online team, Jeff Jampol. And he basically wanted to have a, a conversation with me about, you know, my questions and my concerns about the Casio tracks that we all had. Um, and I was coming to them from the angle of, yes, I'm a fan, but I'm also representing a fan community. So I, I my main concern was getting answers to pass on to the community that was just completely divided and bickering. And uh, it was just getting out of control. And so I wanted answers on behalf of everybody, um, not just for myself. And so anyway, you know, we had uh, some emails back and forth and it all led to a, a telephone call uh, with Jeff. Um, and he basically wanted to 
uh, from memory, he wanted to tell me about what he does um, for John Branca, what he does for, for the MJ Online team. And in a nutshell, he wasn't very happy with the way that the fans were behaving online. And so when I asked him more about that, he basically said that all of the uh, negativity and all of the frustration and anger and almost violent way that we were seemingly behaving to him and to other people at the estate was damaging for Michael Jackson, was damaging for Michael's legacy because whenever a potential new fan were to go online and search for Michael Jackson and want to know more about them, about, about the artist, um, if they were to come across these arguments between fans, it might switch them off from wanting to know more, um, which was a really weird answer. Um, so basically, he was saying that all of the things that we were saying were, was leaving sort of bad breadcrumbs for the future. And it was just going to damage the entire trajectory of gaining new fans. And so when I asked him about, you know, what about other fan communities that are banning people who are expressing certain opinions? He seemed very, very surprised about that. He, he seemed to not really know what was going on, whether that was true or not. I'm not, I'm not sure. But, um, it, it, you know, and then he asked me if I was going to the, to the Michael album premiere. And I said, no, like, like, why would I be? And he was, and he was like, oh. I thought you would be like, well, I was never invited. So why would I go? So that, that leads to what you were saying, Charles, about certain people then having privileges. And I immediately started thinking, well, there must be some people, there must be certain groups of fans in other communities that were gaining certain privileges and access to events and access to the MJ online team in certain ways that we weren't because we were expressing certain opinions, you know, as a fan community whether we believed it was Michael or not singing on the Casio tracks, you know, you know, the people that didn't believe it was Michael Jackson singing, um, it just sort of got out of control and then they just didn't like that. So that was very, very interesting to me. And in a nutshell, he basically said, you know, how, how could, how could we know if it was Michael um, singing? Um, it was just an opinion that, that the estate took or, or Sony took and, you know, here it is, the album's coming out and that's it. And so at the time I sort of felt a bit like you, Damien, I felt like, yeah, you know, we can change the trajectory of this, uh, of this release. After I spoke to, to Jeff, I sort of felt a little bit like, huh, there's nothing we can do. The album's going to come out regardless of what we tell them. So just to add on to what you're saying about your conversations with Jeff, I know that we had at least one conversation with Jeff together because there were multiple. I had at least two conversations with him I was just going to say that um, one of those conversations that I had with him, you know, I'm in Australia. I don't think they ever intended on uh, flying people from Australia to the other side of the world to attend these events. It's pretty far and we're kind of the forgotten country. But what he was trying to say to me is, Damien, when you go online and you say, these songs are fake, that creates a negative energy. And we can't have a negative energy in the Michael Jackson fan community. We need people who are looked at as authorities, uh, like yourself. I don't know why he would put me in a position of authority. Maybe he was just buttering me up because he didn't know me from a bar of soap, literally did not know me. Mm-hmm. And he would say, we need you to be our experts. We need to be able to rely on you when we have a new album coming to give you access to all the material before it comes out. He told me the same thing. Yeah. We need to be able to rely on you to have access to things 
so that you can give your opinion in advance next time so that we can get everything perfect and make the releases the way exactly the way the fans want. And I said, Jeff, the album hasn't come out yet. We're giving you our opinion right now. These songs are not Michael Jackson. Why are you not listening to us? The Jackson family are telling you the same thing. The beneficiaries of the estate you work for are telling you these are not Michael Jackson. Please don't release them. The fans who've been listening to him for decades are telling you that's not his voice. So, at that point, we didn't know the circumstances of the songs. We didn't know any of the background or the history. Mm -hmm. All we had was the songs. And we were saying without reservation that it's not him. And he was saying, well, in my opinion, it is him. And I kind of said, have you ever listened to a Michael Jackson song before? Because Mm -hmm. I've definitely spent tens of thousands of hours listening to Michael Jackson songs. And when I hear these songs, I'm not hearing a Michael Jackson song. So, I don't know what you're hearing, but it's not the same thing that I'm hearing. And he wanted to be a little bit disagreeable about it. Well, I have an opinion and you have an opinion and our opinions are different. So, therefore, it's not a resolved issue. It's not not him. Obviously, we have two different opinions. So, we can't determine that it's not him because I'm saying it is. I was just going, oh, man, like, you're not even listening to me. You're like, and it's not just not listening to me. Like, I am me. I can only speak for me. But you go online and you can find tens of thousands of other fans just like me saying the same things as me. I mean, just in France, there was a petition that had over 7,000 signatures on it to not release these songs. Just fans in France alone. And then the Jackson family and the whole other thing. And it was just like, hang on a second, something's not right here. So, at that point, I, I reached out to the Jackson family. I was like, been trying to talk to the estate. They've got this online team. They're not listening to us. What can we do? At that point, I started talking to Terrell Jackson and he was like, you know, I don't think we can do anything. I've been trying so hard for the last two months to do something about this and they aren't listening. But he, in the same token, even up to like a few days before the album came out, he was still hoping that they would change their mind, but they didn't. Well, that leads me to kind of ask, and and I don't say this at all to disparage the Jackson family. You all know that I I love the Jackson family, but it is a different landscape now to what it was 12 years ago. 12 years ago when these songs came out, the Jackson family were very present on social media. They were leading the charge in terms of the fans having an alternate, more truthful perspective on this this issue. And we would look to them kind of as leaders of, oh, wow, okay, this is the truth. You know, the beneficiaries of the the estate and their family are standing up for what's right. It's different now. You don't, you don't see the Jackson family very much on social media talking about these issues. There hasn't, from what I know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe you guys have seen, but there hasn't been a Jackson family member in the last 48 hours say anything celebratory about these songs coming down. Why, why do we think that is when 12 years ago they were the ones holding the flag up? I think it all comes down to what Charles was saying earlier. Was it Charles or was it Samar? Maybe we're all sharing the same sentiments because it's, you know, it's just what happened. But they were destroyed for speaking out against this. They were completely torn down by – there was a concerted effort among the media that the estate would have been somewhat happy about. Like, well, these people are going outside of the narrative we want and they just stood by and allowed the media to destroy the Jackson family's credibility even though they were right. They were right the whole time before. Before, before these songs came out, the Jackson family was saying these songs are going to be fake 
brace yourselves. In that moment, we were saying, yeah, shut up, get lost, whatever. The Jackson family's crazy. There's no way these songs are going to be fake. So, we weren't programmed by the Jackson family to believe they were going to be fake. We, we completely thought the Jackson family lost their mind by even suggesting that they might be fake. It wasn't until we heard them that we were like, oh, my goodness, the Jackson family was right. Like, this is so obviously fake. And I think what you're saying is that they don't speak now because when they spoke out then, they got squashed so badly that it's like, you've learned your lesson. Don't speak out against us. This is it. Like, this this can't happen again. You want to go through the ringer again? You want us to destroy you in the media again? Well, speak out again, you know? Like, Terrell Jackson told the MJ cast when he was on the MJ cast in 2019 that he had several deals for, a you know, a promising music career that he was on the verge of kind of embarking on. And he was invited into this album by Teddy Riley and they were set to work on it together. And when he realized the songs were fake, he stood strong in his convictions, took those concerns to the estate and then had all of his deals taken away from him. He ended up having no music career other than an independent music career online. Like, unbelievable outcomes that these family members faced just by speaking the truth and doing the right thing. So, that's why they probably don't talk anymore. At this time, they weren't just talking about fake MJ tracks. They were talking about legitimacies of wills and many other issues. And there does seem to be a point where the family just decided to go completely silent on all things MJ and for the most part, or all things MJ estate. And for the most part, they completely have. And I don't know if you guys remember, but Janet Jackson's slap gate incident or Janet Jackson's kidnapping Catherine incident. Yeah. Like what the hell was that about? Mm-hmm. Like that was, that, that's some like conspiracy level shit. And and it's around that point that the Jacksons just shut the hell up about everything. And I, I think they, I, my assumption is they must have taken the position to just tread as safely and cautiously as possible. I mean, I guess it's possible they just resisted for so long and yeah. saw no gains against the control uh, of John Branker that they just put their hands up and said, look, <laughs> what's the point? Yeah, I don't think it's even just a John Branca thing, necessarily. This is not a problem that started when the estate came into existence. For many decades, the media has hated the Jackson family, and they have played a kind of a divide-and-conquer game with the Jacksons, certainly in seeking to separate the Jackson family from Michael and also in seeking to separate the Jackson family from Janet. And the way that the Jackson family is presented by the media has been, for a long time, racist, deeply racist. It is rooted, the attitude, the way that they are described, is all rooted in racist stereotypes and tropes. They're basically described by the media and portrayed by the media and have been ever since Michael became a successful solo star as essentially a pack of savages who are motivated exclusively by greed. They're essentially portrayed as feral and bestial. So, for example, when Catherine Jackson filed her lawsuit against AEG, seeking recompense for Michael's homicide, which she felt that AEG bore some responsibility for because they hired the doctor who killed him. 
there was a British newspaper columnist called Lorraine Kelly who described Catherine Jackson as a vulture. She said Catherine Jackson was a vulture because she was seeking justice for the homicide of her own son. And Taj Jackson had to file an IPSO complaint. He had to file a complaint with the press regulator in the UK, and he won an apology in that particular instance. But this has been going on for years, and it carried on after Leaving Neverland came out, when individuals connected to Leaving Neverland persistently gave interviews on television and in print saying the only reason that Michael Jackson's family are supporting him is because he's their meal ticket. He pays the bills. He's their cash cow. It's inconceivable to these people that the Jackson family are capable of basic human emotion. It's inconceivable to these people that the Jackson family might love their son, brother, uncle, It's inconceivable to them. All they see is a pack of savages who are motivated by money. That's all they see. It's all they've seen since the 1980s. So this is not just an estate issue. This is is an issue that's followed the Jackson family for decades. And every time they, they do anything that contradicts a narrative which has been defined by the media or by somebody else, they get attacked. It's just a a consistent, constant, relentless thing that happens to them. And if I was a member of the Jackson family, then I probably would have learned by now not to speak up as well. I was surprised in 2010 that as many members of the Jackson family actually went public with their concerns as, as actually did, because they knew. They knew as soon as we speak up, we will be accused of greed. And that's exactly what happened. 3T were accused of greed. You're only saying that the songs are fake because you're jealous because Michael never recorded with you and you wish you want the money. You want the royalties from having your song on the album. The brothers who spoke out, they're jealous. They're just furious that their own songs aren't on the album. They wanted a cut. They wanted a piece of the pie and they didn't get it. The, the media has for decades viewed the Jackson family as being incapable of any emotion besides greed. And the Jackson family has had to deal with that for many, many years. And I don't blame them for, for staying quiet because, because they know what's good. They, they know that the mallet is going to squash them. The second they speak out, bang. So, you know, I, I would just interject with that point. It is worth also noting respectfully that the estate was probably writing very large checks to the family at the time as well. And take that for whatever that means, but that's, you know, that's a factor that anybody would have to consider. It is a reality. Charlie, actually, you said a lot of the things that I wanted to say, really, because there's a purveying narrative around the Jackson family based on nothing other than their race, really. And what was being spoken about them publicly in in the press and in the media was being repeated in the Michael Jackson forums by predominantly new, predominantly white Michael Jackson fans who had bought bought into the lies about the family. And the problem is that then you had the estate kind of adding fuel to the fire in their own statements to the press saying that, you know, when Janet and Randy had posted their letter on 
Twitter challenging the estate. The estate's response to that was a statement which referred to members of the Jackson family who were deliberately omitted from Michael Jackson's will. Janet Jackson never has to work again for the rest of her life if she doesn't want to. She'll always be a millionaire. But also to talk about these people like Jermaine and Jackie and Marlon, who have been working since they were five, six years old as being lazy and greedy and not working hard for their money. It's it's so gr- grotesque. And when I said earlier in the, in the episode that there's damage that's been done that can never be unpicked, that goes way beyond the songs, it's this kind of thing. And I remember watching an episode of the reality series that Taj, Tarrell and TJ Jackson made. And I think it was the first episode where they had kind of, Taj and TJ had tracked down Tarrell at his house and they were talking to him. And I think there was an interview with Tarrell and he started talking about Michael and he could not speak about, he could not talk about him without getting upset and crying. And I watched that and I, I thought, you know, we're fans. We know how devastated we were when Michael Jackson passed. We know we're here 12 years later talking about the Cassio songs. We know how devastated we were when we heard Breaking News Leak or Premiere, when we heard Keep Your Head Up, when we heard Monster. We all know how devastated we were. Now imagine you're Terrell Jackson and you hear that and this is happening and unfolding in front of you and you have people going on TV claiming to be your sister who you've never heard about this family member that you've never known about going on Fox News or whatever channel it was talking on behalf of your family. The world through the eyes of the Jackson family is a completely different world to the world that you guys and I navigate as fans. So we're traumatised by what's happened over the last 12 years. You can only imagine what those people are going through. And like I said, if you've ever met Tara, if you've ever met Taj Jackson, they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. They're sweet, humble, decent, perfectly normal people. And they've, they have to navigate this grotesque and gruesome world. And it's not fair. So 12 years later, to silently remove the songs, yes, it's a celebration for us. Yes, it's a celebration for Michael Jackson's discography. Yes, it's a celebration of 12 years of protest. But what happened to that family will never be unpicked and the damage will never be undone, not by the people who are in charge of this estate as it currently stands. You know, it's not all so damaging. My experience in the world of Michael Jackson and the world of the fan community was made much, much richer thanks to these fake songs. I think it's the reason some of my best friends, including many of you on this call, you're all my friends, you know, it's organized the fan community in a way that probably proved very useful in later battles like Leaving Neverland, for example, not every outcome is so terrible. There's there's quite a bit of beauty. There's quite a bit of beauty here. I love your optimism, James, honestly, genuinely. And I mean that sincerely. I, I wish I I was more like you. That's all I can say. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm old and a bit too kind of, maybe I'm a bit too kind of damaged, but I, I really love your optimism. And actually what you've said is absolutely true. You know, would we be here 12 years later? Would we have been such good friends? Would we have been you know, communicate with the Jackson family? Would we have had dinner with Tard Jackson? Would we have hung out with these people? Would we have, would our lives be where they are if we weren't kind of fortified and, you know, pushed into the kind of lives that we now live? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And genuinely, sincerely, I wish I had more of your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to say that um, I, I think I, 
I echo you, James. I, I, I'm really also hopeful that this, you know, if the songs do stay down for good now, that's one of my fears that they come back for some for some reason. If they do stay stay down for good, that the fans can just glue themselves back together because the way that we were before and after the songs came out, it was really night and day. And really, the the, the one thing that that kickstarted this whole divide was the, was the songs um, and the whole bickering. And so now that they're gone, I really hope that you know whether you still believe that that's Michael Jackson or not. Um, I, now that they're gone, I think I, ho- I hope we can just remove them from the equation and just move on and unite again. So yeah, that, that's, I'm just hopeful. On that front, I believe that the the scandal surrounding these songs actually was in in no small part responsible for the creation of the MJ cast. Is that right, Jamin? Yeah, uh, our first interview ever was meant to be with Eddie Cassio, who obviously was 50% mastermind of these these fake songs along with James Port. And we did interview him in a way like it, <laughs> it, it it's, was never meant to come out and people will need to wait uh, for, for Damien's podcast, Faking Michael, to hear portions of that discussion. But it ended up, th- this conversation that I had with Eddie it couldn't have happened any later in the MJ cast history. We we always sort of wanted, we had the goal of being able to interview people that knew and worked with Michael. And we knew that we couldn't interview Eddie too far into the history of the show because we also wanted to be absolutely real with our uh, opinions on, on the fake songs in the Michael album. And if he had have heard the, <laughs> the show too much, he obviously would have realized that we uh, weren't people that he should be talking to. So um, one of the first things that, Q and I wanted to do or was to talk to Eddie. And so I, I called him. I think I can't remember how it happened, but I just rang him and uh, he ended up picking up. I think from memory, he was driving somewhere when he picked up the call and then he arrived at his studio and we kept talking for a long time, probably over an hour, I think nearly an hour and a half or something like that. And the conversation was just meant to be organizing when we would have an interview because he agreed to doing an interview pretty early in the conversation. And then in the conversation, I sort of realized, well, there's a chance this may never actually happen. There's a chance the interview may never go ahead. So I'm going to just try and make this conversation the interview. And luckily, he stayed on the phone for, I think, an hour and a half, and we just talked through the songs. We talked through the Michael album, the public response to it, all kinds of things, all kinds of things. Yeah, to your question, Charlie, really it was it was those songs that I do sometimes wonder would the MJ cast exist if it wasn't for the Michael album? It probably would because the core aspect of the MJ cast is really just wanting to celebrate Michael and the art he created and the people that worked with him. But it's certain the Michael album certainly imbued a passion within me for defending Michael's art and defending Michael that maybe wouldn't be as strong if it wasn't for it. And also, I think, you know, you've got the best roster of high-profile Michael Jackson collaborators on record in the world. The archive of interviews that you have collated is it's unparalleled. It's nothing even comes close to what the MJ cast has amassed as far as first-hand exclusive interviews with people who knew Michael Jackson. We had access to a lot of those people purely because... For five years prior 
to founding the MJ cast, we had been investigating the Casio tracks. So, it was like, you've been speaking to Matt Forger about the Casio tracks? Well, maybe let's try and get him on the MJ cast. You've been speaking to Michael Prince about the Casio tracks? Let's try and get him on the MJ cast. You know, all these different people, Tarrell Jackson, Taj Jackson, all these people had been originally contributors to the investigation of the Casio tracks. So, the relationships existed quite a long time before the MJ cast actually came along. Yeah. And it was almost like we've got all of these wonderful people who are speaking to us about this really terrible situation with this devastating fraud that's been committed against Michael Jackson. It would be a shame to only use these people in a way that brings light to the devastation. We could go back and revisit those conversations and and, and do positive interviews with them and archive them on the MJ cast. And there were a lot of them. Like the, the names that come to mind immediately are the ones I just mentioned, Michael Prince, Tarrell and Taj and TJ, they all contributed to the, the investigation within the first couple of years. You know, from 2010 to 2012, these people were all helping us try to solve the mystery of the Casio tracks. Harrison Funk as well and, and plenty of other people who were in the studio when those fake songs were being produced. And so, we had access to them. We should go back to them and say, what do you think about this idea, the MJ cast? Like, we could do interviews with everybody and some of your best relationships, Jamin, have been from people that we've just, you know, picked up along that investigative route. And now they've got, now they're some of the most beautiful and wonderful historic interviews that you have conducted and, and the other people involved at the MJ cast have conducted with this incredible roster. But it all comes back to the freaking Casio <laughs> tracks. <laughs> And and in some ways, the MJ cast, once we realized that the MJ cast and interviewing the people we had already interviewed about the Casio tracks, maybe once they had agreed to go on the MJ cast, we could have a second round with them about the Casio tracks. And so, there's a bunch of interviews that have been done for the MJ cast that have never even been published because they're better served as contents for the outcome of the investigation, which is obviously the Faking Michael podcast. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the MJ cast almost became like this Trojan horse and we can go into that another time. There's a better time to do it. But it almost became this way to collect information about the topic we're talking about today with the Casio tracks and all of those conversations collectively together and all of the evidence that we've collected and, and, and how it's all progressed over the years gets us to where we are today. I don't think... If we don't have those conversations with those people and they don't get archived and they don't get used as evidence and then, and you know, provided to the plaintiff of a lawsuit and blah, 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 maybe we aren't here having a roundtable about the Casio tracks have come down. Maybe we're still, you know, in our misery about the fact that there are forgeries on Michael Jackson's discography. So, mm. the MJ cast is, is a huge, huge, crucial, critical part of the solving of this mystery. And the bringing down of those songs and the the keeping of the conversation going. There hasn't been a season of the MJ cast that hasn't covered these songs, either <laughs> either just in conversation or in interviews with people who were there or with, you know, commentary on the lawsuit or any of the different aspects. The MJ cast has kept the whole thing alive in people's consciousness because if if we don't talk about it, who knows about it? Who's thinking about it? And maybe it does frustrate some people to constantly hear us talking about, you know, fake songs, but the reality is 
There are fake songs. And the reality is they were on your idol's discography. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to do something about it, then that's fine. You don't have to. You're not obliged to. But we wanted to and so we did. So, You can become numb to it. You can, like talking about it every day, thinking about it every day. Uh, you know, it can feel like, you know, 10 years later you wake up, yeah, there's fake songs on the discography. It's You still get angry about it, but it's just a reality you sort of learn to live with as a fan. But I'm so glad that they are down now. And Dan, like you were saying, I just hope they stay down. And as J- as James has, has alluded to earlier, that potentially they could have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the Michael Jackson fans. If it wasn't for Michael ja- the Michael Jackson fans, because like Charlie had mentioned earlier, the Jackson family have been so tarnished, so kind of easily dismissed by the press and easily dismissed by the estate and all of their supporters in the fan community that the only people who were able to keep this going for 12 years were the fans. And if the fans hadn't been as tenacious and relentless as they had been, and, you know, it, all any, any one of us, and I know lots of fans actually who have just kind of fallen by the wayside, people who used to be on forums, mm-hmm. who are no longer on forums, who, who are no longer on social media really, and who no longer are fighting the fight but if it wasn't for the fans who fought it out all of these years, these songs would not have been removed. They would have been. They would have. They would have stayed on forevermore. I imagine. Yeah, that's a really good point, Tamar. Yeah, I think that's a testament to everybody, to everybody's passions um, for Michael. You know, the fact that these songs have finally been taken off. So, where does that leave us now? The songs are gone. Thank God. It is a moment of celebration in that way. The songs are not there. Michael's catalogue now does not have songs on it that he's not singing. But where do we go next? I mean, there's still a lot to learn, right? We still don't have an official a statement from Sony Music, from Epic Records, from the Michael Jackson estate as a whole entity. So I guess that's the next step. We will keep our listeners up to date with what goes on in that way to learn the whole story and everything leading up to this moment. Faking Michael is on the horizon. I can't wait to hear that in its totality. It's going to be amazing. What does this mean now in terms of the fans' relationship with the entity that is the Michael Jackson estate? It's an interesting question because I do not engage. Firstly, I'm not a huge Michael Jackson consumer anyway, to be honest. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of your listeners despise me so much is that I would, <laughs> I, I, it's so rare. It's so rare for me to listen to Michael or watch Michael because I just kind of feel like he didn't leave us that much, you know, and I've kind of listened to everything to death and I'm not getting much new out of it. And the only way to really get anything out of it is to leave a long time between listens. So, and I don't engage particularly, I don't engage with anything posthumous. I could not tell you the last time that I listened to a posthumous song. I have no interest in them. My personal view is that It is unethical and immoral to take works by an artist which they chose, they completed or did not complete, and chose never to release and to release them. I don't think that's a good thing to do. I don't think it's ethical. 
I don't think it's moral or respectful. And the only thing that I can really get on board with in, in terms of posthumous releases is concerts, because the artist has clearly chosen to place a concert in the public domain. It's a public event which has been performed live for thousands of people. You can't unring that bell. So if footage exists of concerts, then great, give it to us. And if there's stuff that Michael chose to release, like, you know, the making of Thriller or something, which we've never had in good quality, then great, give us that. But I don't have any interest in posthumous music. I never listened to it. So what impact is the retraction of these songs going to have for me? Literally none. None. Because I don't engage with the album. I don't engage with the real songs. The, the songs which are known to be real. So why would I give a monkeys about the, the fake ones? I mean, it makes no difference to me at all. Yes, but Charlie, in the past, you've had a pretty public position around you would not financially engage with the estate or Sony, mainly because of this decision, the Casio tracks, and the way that the certain people who are in charge treat Michael Jackson. So what you're saying is if tomorrow they released... Uh, a higher definition version of the bad tour or whatever tour, the triumph tour, and you could go and buy it. Would you go buy it at this point? Have they done enough now by removing the songs for fans who have protested in the past to feel comfortable now engaging? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I went through a long period where I was quite vociferous about not paying for anything that the estate released for reasons including that my personal opinion based on the evidence was that the songs, the three songs at issue were not real. And that moreover, more than that though, it was the way that the situation was handled, particularly the way the Jackson family ended up being treated. It just seems very strange that an estate would basically directly contradict the wishes of the beneficiaries that it exists to serve that doesn't seem appropriate to me. The way that the family was sort of portrayed for for the position that they took, that concerned me. That almost was worse than the release of the songs. See, my view is the estate, if you believe that these songs are fake, there is no suggestion even within that context that the estate was party to the creation of the fake songs. And I think all reasonable persons would have to accept that if the songs are fake, then the estate and Sony are also victims of a fraud because they paid millions of dollars for these songs and they got sold a, a dud, right? So for me, what my issue with the estate is less about the songs and it's more about the handling of the fallout. You can accept that they accidentally bought some fake songs. It's what they did next, which is egregious, in my opinion. I agree. And I would like to add to that. Yeah. By the estate not standing up against this once they were made aware of it, because clearly the songs got into the possession of the estate and Sony before there were any questions raised, right? The questions came into play when... Teddy Riley and, and Terrell Jackson were in the studio and Teddy's job was to remix them and they're listening to them and then they realize, oh, shit, we've got a problem, and then they raise it. So, at that point, the estate 
should have said, well, we need to get to the bottom of this genuinely and honestly and, and act accordingly. And if these songs really are fake, then like you said, Charlie, we've been the victims of fraud and we need to go back to the people who sold us these songs and tell us, hang on a second, you've sold us fake songs. We want our money back. You can have your songs back. The deal is cancelled. And they didn't do that. Instead of doing that, they did everything in their power to justify to the consumers, us, that they were real when everybody behind the scenes who really mattered was telling them they were not real. And the prime beneficiary of the state, like you pointed out, was insisting they shouldn't be released and they were. So, I mean, like technically, like if you you look at it from a bigger picture view, by siding with the forgers of these songs and allowing their forgeries to be put on an official album and then when a fan, a disgruntled fan, brings a lawsuit because you have defrauded them, you then go into court for eight years and stand behind the forgers who originally defrauded you, what does that say about how you feel about the artist you're supposed to represent? And moreover, what does that actually say for their position on people making up lies about Michael Jackson and walking through the door with their hands out for money? They're saying, if you walk through the door with your hand out for money and a big lie about Michael Jackson, will slap some cash in your hand possibly. That's the precedent that they set when these people came through the door with fake songs and a false allegation that Michael Jackson sang them. Because if you dial it all the way back to its origins, this is literally a case of a false allegation of someone who knew Michael for 25 years who walked through the door of the estate and said, Michael Jackson did this, give me money. And the allegation was that Michael Jackson sang these songs, which he did not sing. And the estate put money in his hand and said, great. And obviously, that's not comparable to some of the other situations of the of the same kind of nature that I'm kind of paralleling because Michael Jackson was a singer and Eddie Cassio was a producer. So, if a producer comes in and says the singer sang the songs that I produced, it kind of sounds like that, that sounds about right. And Michael Jackson really was living with the Casio family in the period in which Eddie said that he recorded them. So, the alibi checks out too. All these things are ticking off, ticking off, ticking off until the experts who know what Michael sounds like hear it and say, well, it's not him singing. At that point, you have to, you have to reassess and say, hang on a second, we've got to go back to this guy and say, something's not right here. And they didn't do it. And in my opinion, that set a very, very strong precedence that If we know that you're falsely accusing Michael Jackson of doing something, we will not hold you accountable. And it opens the door. You can come through with this and, you know, it happened. Yeah, I I think you're touching on something. I was kind of, see, what James has done is he's asked me a question that I've not previously thought about the answer to. So I'm having to sort of (laughs) talk my way through my thought process to arrive at a conclusion that I felt comfortable with. So... For me, it was less about the songs, which I feel that they were tricked into buying, in my opinion, based on the evidence. It was about the way that they handled the situation afterwards, including that precedent that you say that they set. And it was also about the family's treatment. Now, other things have happened since then, which have softened my opinion somewhat. One of those things is that Prince Jackson has now joined the estate. Prince, Paris, and BG have promoted estate products. For example, 
appearing at the premiere of the, the musical in New York. The brothers, or some of them, have cooperated with estate documentaries, for example. So, and I think possibly, did Michael's parents cooperate with one of those estate documentaries, one of the Spike Lee documentaries? I can't remember. So the family's attitude towards the estate seems to have softened. And the other thing that the estate has done, which has impressed me, I think, is the response to the um, the posthumous abuse allegations and particularly leaving Neverland in terms of their legal handling of those situations has sort of reversed the precedent that you're talking about. So they did set a precedent with the songs, which I believe to be fake. They did set that precedent, but that precedent did not continue. It was not a precedent that they continued to then match in subsequent, more serious, arguably, situations. So they let all of the auction items go with false signatures on them and... I mean, yes, that, no, that's that's inexcusable, right? That's that's inexcusable, in my opinion. The handling of the fake songs, allegedly, situation was inexcusable. But if the, I kind of feel like if the Jackson family can excuse it, then it's somewhat ridiculous for me to be like standing there with a picket sign when the actual direct victims seem not to really care anymore. So I've, I'm not really. I haven't arrived at a conclusion yet as to my position on a posthumous product. If it came out tomorrow and I was interested in it, if somebody <laughs> said tomorrow, Paris, the, the we found this the movie celluloid Paris concert and it's going into cinemas next week, would I go and see it? I think I probably would. And if I was in New York tomorrow, I probably would buy a ticket to go to the musical. That doesn't mean that if the estate released a posthumous album tomorrow, I'd go out and buy it because I I do still have a moral problem with that and an ethical problem with that. So it's a complex. It's a sorry. It's a it's a simple question to which the answer is complicated. Well, Hopefully, it makes sense. Now you know how I feel. Sounds, it sort of sounds, Charlie, that something that I was talking about again online today about digital taxidermy, actual Michael Jackson live performances of Michael Jackson on a stage performing in a public event, which he is not coerced into performing or has not been kind of puppeteered posthumously, is okay, is uh, acceptable. But this sort of kind of digital remaking of demos and songs and parts of songs and like, you know, Michael kind of umming and ahhing his way through songs and then, then putting those to kind of Teddy Riley beats it's that kind of digital taxidermy that you have an issue with, which I think, well, most discerning fans would probably have a massive issue with. I should say, actually, Jamie, to your question about supporting estate projects, I, I personally, I don't and I wouldn't. Uh, I'm not their target market. They're clearly saying in their statements that I'm not their target market, so it's the feeling's pretty mutual. But I actively choose to avoid their products. I wouldn't buy anything that they release the point Charlie made, if they did release a movie version of uh, a bad concert at Wembley Stadium in pristine condition and <laughs> Prince Jackson gave his blessings, then yes, I probably may well turn up for that. But otherwise, in terms of buying product, I'm just, I, I just don't, yeah, I just don't engage posthumously with most artists, with Prince as well. I haven't really purchased anything. I haven't purchased anything 
the George Michael estate have released, other than I did go and see the recent documentary, which George had worked on. So to answer your question, I mean, I'm the kind of person who will go into, you know, I had to recently replace my TV and I went into a massive PC world shop and walked through the TV aisles and there was a massive section dedicated to the Sony TVs and they're all stunning and they're all amazing quality and all amazing technology. But I will walk straight through that and I will not engage with any of their products. So I'm that kind of person. I'm sure <laughs> there's plenty of fans who are like that too. I love it. Yeah, actually, that's that's funny. I, when I, I'm wearing some headphones right now, which I bought about three or four years ago when my old ones broke. And I sent a message actually to Casey Rain, who's been on the podcast before. I said, Casey, you're, you're the expert. I need a pair of in-ear headphones, which will give me really good sound that are not made by Sony. What would you <laughs> recommend? <laughs> and as far as posthumous products also, I do think that there's an issue of quality just quickly. I think, for example, I have not ordered Thriller 40 and <laughs> at present have no intention of ordering Thriller 40. And nobody blames you. <laughs> yeah. However, if Thriller 40 had been a deluxe box set with a, a glorious hardback book in it and a high-definition victory concert and a high-definition upscaled super-duper version of the making of Thriller thing that Michael released when he was alive, for example, then there is a chance that I would have ordered that. I might have ordered that if it was worth ordering. But if you're going to keep releasing stuff that's not worth ordering, then why would I order it? Mm. You know, so regardless of the moral or ethical position, there's also that ongoing issue of whether the stuff is even worth buying in the first place. Charlie, I was going to ask that, do you think the involvement of the family is a massive determining factor? Because for me it is so, you know, I remember we were at the same concert, actually, uh, about 10 years ago. The Jacksons performed at Hammersmith Apollo. And I remember being there and Jermaine performing Gone Too Soon uh, live to the crowd. And there was videos of Michael on the stage. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the house at the end of that song. And I just can't ever imagine that sort of authentic emotion being communicated at the MJ1 musical yes. show, do you know what I mean? I just can't believe, you know, you could you could have like digital CD being played in the background with lookalikes on stage conveying the same emotion that Jermaine Jackson, brother of Michael, older brother of Michael, performing one of his songs. There were people were crying in the audience, like right next to me, like tears dripping down their faces. And from what I've I've seen from the estate, there's always been an, a massive emotional kind of wasteland and everything that they've produced like even with the thriller 40 even though it hasn't even come out yet just the kind of haphazard nature of everything that they do there's no emotional attachment it's not you can it's almost like there's no love in it mj you know one of the last things he gave us was that phrase do it with love l-o-v-e and everything that they've done you can there's it's devoid of emotion it's devoid of love and it is all so synthetic there's a synthetic nature to everything they've done. Well, it is synthetic. And they've and here's here's what I come to realize about the estate and their products, at least with anything new. At least Thriller 40 is authentic. I mean, they just literally have to copy and paste old files. And I think we'd be mostly happy, to be honest, upgrade them. But anything new they do, any new anything new, anything that they put their creative direction in, 
they seem to rely on, for lack of a better word, holograms. We're sitting here in 2022, and the image of the real Michael Jackson isn't anywhere to even be seen in the MJ musical. It's literally, quite literally, they've reached their hologram product. It seems to be their cash cow for the foreseeable future, and uh, it, it's literally a hologram. They literally tried selling us holograms on the Billboard Music Awards, if you remember. The Halloween special was a CGI hologram version of Michael. The Michael album, these three fake tracks, whether it was a deliberate creative decision or not, was essentially the beginning of you know a hologram era. Some would even argue that this is it film itself because it was so heavily edited, was essentially a hologram Michael. They've been using hologram Michael the entire time. Yeah, It's their creation. It's, it is synthetic. So just a reminder, my question's not as simple as, would you go and buy something from the estate anymore? My question is really, is the removal of the songs enough for us as longtime fans to re-engage with the estate? Honestly, for me, um, no. Um, just because of the patterns uh, that you, James, and Samara, and Charles, and everybody here on the roundtable has mentioned, there just seems to be no genuine love for Michael, uh, no respect for what he stood for, respect for his art, respect for him as a person. There seems to be no thought process in, in, in uh, anything that they release. The way that they treat the fans with so much disdain is just it's unforgivable. So I, I just I, I can't engage with these people, no matter what they do. You know, they don't belong in their positions. That's my opinion. Well, can I just add actually uh, to what Dan just said? When the Thriller 40 logo was displayed on social media, I remember I was sitting at home one evening and I got a message from a friend of mine who's not really on Twitter and he's not anyone that any of you guys know. And he messaged me a link, a Twitter link to a fan's version of a Thriller 40 graphic. And I clicked it and it linked into Dan's Thriller 40 graphic mm. design. And and I, I smiled because my mate, my friend who messaged me doesn't know I know Dan. And that communicated quite a lot to me that, 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 the kind of lack of faith in the Michael Jackson estate is such that kind of casual fans are aware of these conversations. They're aware of the kind of lack of creativity, the lack of care, the lack of kind of heart, real de- heart and desire to do something brilliant. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the point. I think someone had posted a quote. I think Damien had posted a quote on Twitter attributed, I think, to John Branker saying something along the lines of the quality goes in before the name goes on or something. And just looking at that font, it's, it's, it's so hateful. You know, I, I, I've, I work as a graphic designer. I've worked as a graphic designer for about 25 years. I've worked with some of the best graphic designers in the UK. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about designers that I've worked with. And I've sat in rooms with them where they've been designing products and there'll be a room of 35, 35, 40 people kind of chipping away at the designs, trying to make it as absolutely timeless and as perfect as possible. And they'll go through this process for weeks and weeks and weeks on end until they get the product that they want and then they can put it on the shelves. And when you see that Thriller 40 logo, it's so hateful. It's just a hateful, disdainful, creative decision to do something that lazy and that cheap. It's the cheapness Mm -hmm. and the tackiness of the product that kills you. And there's no way in the world that that should ever be released. 
and the product hasn't been released yet. The fans are telling you, do not release it in the current state. Let's see what they do. We've been ignored before. We'll probably be ignored again. But it's that kind of transaction. They don't meet us halfway. If we say to them, this is way below expectation, work harder. And and there is precedent for it in recent years. You know, you guys probably know the story about the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer, the original Sonic the Hedgehog film trailer where fans complained about the kind of CGI depiction of Sonic and he didn't look like the computer game character. And then you didn't see it for another year. Like, you know, the production company said, we've taken your criticisms on board. 12 months later, they released another trailer or however many months later, they released another trailer to everyone's satisfaction. And when the film came out, there's a buy-in. The fans have felt that they've been listened to and heard. Their concerns have been addressed. And there's kind of a mutual respect between the content providers and the content receivers. And that's massively lacking here. That's because, you know, we as fans of Michael Jackson, artistically, obviously not as a person, he's his own person with his own life, but his art belongs to the world. He released that art to the world and it's kind of ours. And when we all raise our voice collectively and say, we don't accept this, this is not his standard or even our standard, we don't want it to be ours. And when they don't come back to us and say, we will work harder to make it yours, they go, oh no, that's ours. And it's fine how it is. Like with the Thriller logo, they released a statement in response to the Thriller logo and it says, you know, we've received a lot of feedback and uh, we think it's a good decision to do it. So, we're doing it and you can go get fucked. Yeah. That's literally what they said to the fans. It's the patronizing. It's the patronizing thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, what you're saying with the Hedgehog thing, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, when it comes out and it's been fixed to the satisfaction of the fans- it's now being given back to the fans the way they want it. And so they feel this is ours. We have raised our voice, the changes have been made, and this is ours because we've influenced this in a way that brings it to the standard that it needs to be. And with Thriller, if the estate would have said, oh, dear, we didn't realize you would be so upset with us doing this. We're going to go back to the original version. We're going to sharpen it up. We're going to you know, put a retro sheen on it, just, just like what Dan did with his. We would have said, wow, they really listened to us. And then maybe we'd be thinking to hit that pre-order button. But it's the contempt that they have for the fans, obviously, for the consumers, but also for Michael because it's his work that you're putting this, you know, picture on. It's his album, if you wouldn't call the Michael album, his album. It's a Michael Jackson album with three fake songs with his name slapped on them that aren't his, that we raised our voice about, that we collectively said we don't accept these, and they collectively, as the estate and Sony said, go and get fucked. And it's their continual their continual messaging to us that you don't matter, we know what we're doing, and you can go and get fucked. And that's what they, that's, that, that's for 12 years has been their position in response to any feedback that they get from fans. They, and, and they, sh- they're technically John Branker and and John McClane are the executives, and they're human beings, of course, and they probably have feelings. Who knows? But <laughs> they're they're running a corporation, you know, Michael Jackson Inc., as you can refer to it per the title of Zach O'Malley Greenberg's book, who had his book launch at John Branker's house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jackson Inc., right? It's Michael Jackson, Inc., and a corporation doesn't have feelings. So, it shouldn't matter how aggressive we are and how, you know, how much hate we sling at them for the, for the sloppy work they do. They should rise above it, 
take it on board and fix it. And the fact that they can't do that and just and keep in mind, I don't know how much the percentage, do you know how much percentage these executives make from Michael's estate? Is it 5%? 5% of revenue or 5% of profits? Either way, if it's 5%, the estate's made $2.6 billion since Michael passed away. That's $130 million each. So, if you're making $130 million, you probably have, you know, a good enough life where you could say, you know what? put a little bit of extra effort in for these people that are mm-hmm. making us that $130 million or, or whatever it is. Plus legal fees, plus asset sales. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I mean, come on. But it, this is why we feel so disconnected from the whole Michael Jackson thing is because the gatekeepers to the Michael Jackson Inc., they don't care about us. They just don't. And it's not that they don't care about us and that, you know, or me individually is so important or you individually is so important, but us includes Michael and his family. And mm-hmm. then it becomes hugely problematic when you don't even care about the actual human being who gave himself and his work to the world and you just want to disrespect it. It's it's just, I mean. I think it, I, if it isn't contempt, um, it's definitely um, a pattern that you can only conclude that th- they don't understand what they're dealing with. They don't understand the magic of Michael Jackson. They don't understand the product, the brand that they've been left with. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have these these awful products because they don't really understand how to, you know, what step one is. Yeah, I think that's something that, that's something that I, I remember Yoko Ono said pretty much when Michael Jackson acquired the Beatles catalogue. She said, he's an artist, so he'll look after that catalogue as an artist would look after that catalogue. And, you know, he had the power of veto in meetings. So a corporation intent on profit over loss would have just, you know, they would have licensed the Beatles songs out for everything, for every kind of possible TV advert, radio advert, film trailer that they could have licensed it out for. Michael Jackson being an artist used the power of veto to make sure those things didn't happen. And I'm, I'm afraid you don't have that in the room now. And I think actually what you just said there, Dan, is is really pertinent because it's these are not decisions made by artists. And one of the things that me and Charlie always speak about, have spoken about for years and years, would these decisions be made for the John Lennon catalogue or the Beatles catalogue or whoever else's catalogue? The John Lennon fans would be up in arms because they are seen as a significant and serious fan base. Yeah, you, you don't see Imagine featuring Pitbull. <laughs> and Pitbull, genuinely, that's the example I always use. It's like, firstly, which new Michael Jackson fan is listening to that over the original Michael Jackson bad single? Which Michael, which new Michael Jackson fan is putting that in their CD in the car and listening to that over the original Michael Jackson songs? No one's listening to it. And it's, that, it's, it's exactly that. You would never have John Lennon, you know, collaborating with like Pitbull. And I feel bad saying about Pitbull all the time, but it's the truth. You just wouldn't have it. And can you imagine the furore if like the Beatles fans or the John Lennon fans had to deal with that? You would never hear the end of it. And the difference is the John Lennon fans are not characterised in the same way as the Michael Jackson fans are. Michael Jackson fans are dismissed as idiots and kind of, you know, people who need to get a life. And one again, another thing I say to Charlie all the time, a lot of us are professionals. A lot of us, are, you know, have our own businesses. A lot of us are really kind of established in what we do in our careers and our lives. And, you know, so again, so for a graphic designer like me who's worked with other graphic designers to see really shoddy work like the Thriller 40 logo 
And then to be dismissed as, well, you know, we're just rebranding the whole thing. This is what happens with catalogs. Don't talk to us like we're idiots and we don't know, we don't know, <laughs> we don't know how media works, yeah. you know, or we don't know how products yeah. are released. <laughs> it's an insult. They're not talking to us like we're idiots. They are talking to us from the position of being idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I think what's most concerning is these are the same exact, we get this inside look as adults in this era and we see how they operate and we're mortified. And then you have to realize these were the exact same people guiding Michael yes. during Michael's life. And imagine great point. how frustrating and all these, all these things, you know, the almost conspiratorial components about how they work and, and how they silence you and how they operate. Our hero had to deal with all that stuff, all of it. And, and had to face it smiling in front of the public. If you were looking for a deeper connection to Michael Jackson, we got it. And we got it after he died because we kind of lived in his shoes a little bit. I think we got it. And that's kind of the beauty in all of this is we got that deeper connection in, in one way or another. What is it that the Motown uh, posthumous products have that the Sony Epic Records posthumous products do not have? Why are the Motown products and why are Motown able to do such a brilliant job with their products where Sony and Epic wholeheartedly fail. It, it also, Hippo Select, there were a number of Motown, re-releases of Motown stuff in box sets, which were not released by Motown, that were put out by Hippo Select. And these were limited edition box sets where they only made like 5,000 of them. And there is so much care and beauty in those releases. And you just look at it and go, if you can put that much care and attention into something that you know you're only going to sell 5,000 of. And these weren't box sets that cost a million quid either. These were very reasonably priced sets. I'm thinking of things like Rare Pearls and... Um, Hello World. Hello World, yeah. I mean, those were beautiful sets. They were limited edition. So much went into them. And you just think, if you if you can make a few thousand of those and put so much work into them and turn a profit... There is just no excuse for the world's biggest record label not to be doing a proper job of Thriller 40, for example. There's no excuse for it. It's just so bizarre. And you, you do just wonder what on earth is going on, really, in the rooms where these decisions are being made. James, the point you just made before those points was just it all i've got like all the hair on my arms is standing up i got goosebumps everywhere that's a, a really really beautiful point and the person we haven't heard from uh yet on the round table in answer to that question is damien so damien have they done enough now has the removal of the songs been enough for you to now properly re-engage with sony and the estate let's see because we don't know how this is going to unfold. If the statement from Chuck is anything to go by, then they've actually taken a step back <laughs> because the damage that they did with the Casio tracks was done, right? Removing them is great, but the damage was done. The contempt that they show in their justifications of what they're doing, I mean, like Samar said earlier, we're clearly not the target audience. They don't care about the existing fans. They just want us to shut up and move to the side and leave a peaceful little playground for the new fans to come in. So, I'm not a new fan, you know. I've been around for 
you know, almost three decades. So, where do I fit into the the estates puzzle? Are they going to release anything that I'll actually like? Like to to buy a product, you actually have to like it first. Well, some people they don't have to like it, but they buy everything. But <laughs> <laughs> like zero lies told, some people will just buy everything regardless of what it is. Every t-shirt. But put it this way, I had seven tickets to see Michael live in London in for the This Is It show. I then sacrificed all of my money to get the pieces of cardboard that AEG posthumously printed and pretended like they were Michael Jackson's handcrafted tickets. I then went to the cinema nine times to see the This Is It film. I then flew interstate to attend the launch of the This Is It DVD. I I had booked a trip to go to a launch event, which was a triple event. It was the Vision DVD box set, the uh, Experience video game and the Michael album. And when the breaking news track came out and I realized what it was and I tried my best to reach people and just have conversations and try to give the opinion of myself and thousands of people who felt the same way that I did and I was told to fuck off. I just have kept that fuck off in my back pocket and it's like a red card on a soccer field. I just wave it at them every time they release something now and say fuck off. So, that's my answer. I love it. I love it. And just to answer my own question as well, I think I'm right there with you, Damo. Basically, something happened over the last 24 hours that I didn't think was going to happen. I actually did always think when these songs come down, I'd be ready mentally to re-engage. And maybe for a few hours, I kind of was. In the right circumstances, right? Like if it was different, it's not different though. It is the way it is. If they would have just said, we've done the wrong thing, the fans have been the ones to affect this change. Yes. We are conceding. We're removing them, trying to rebuild the bridges we burned down. And we're extending an olive branch. And, and you guys were right all along. The Jackson family was right all along. And we, we're going we're gonna to make it right. That's what we needed. They haven't, said, they haven't said that. They've said, no, it's nothing to do with the authenticity. You guys are just a bunch of bitches. Stop whinging. Look at our <laughs> show. Look at our musical. You know, four Tony Awards, biggest selling album of the year of, of all time is coming out in Thriller 40. Like, it's just like, oh, oh. we were, I was kind of like you, like you, like you just said, and I'm sorry to talk over you, Jamin. That's, it's okay. You normally say what I want to say anyway. So <laughs> there, there was a few hours where it was genuinely, like, I got very emotional when I saw that the songs had started to come down on different platforms. I got very emotional and I started to feel like, is it a new day? Like, are we turning a page here? And it was genuine, genuine, like, hope and it was kind of a celebratory feeling and that, and that was in the fan community everyone was saying finally thank god the fake songs are down finally thank god the, the fake songs are down. it took them 12 years what took them so long but like this is what we've been wanting and then they said what they said and it just kind of just slapped us all in the face some people are moving through that and accepting the slap in the face and saying i'm still happy that the songs are down and i am too i'm definitely not begrudging that the songs are down because that's a phenomenal outcome. But the environment in which we live, the relationship that we have with these people and their unwillingness to apologize to us and to say that, you know, you were right or that, you know, we are terribly sorry that this has happened and the last 12 years are, 
you know, we wish we could take it back, but we can't, but we'd like the next 12 years to be better. They're not saying anything like that. They're not saying anything like that. So, we can't get closure until they change their ways and their ways haven't changed. So, and they were still selling these songs until 36 hours ago. So, it's, it's very early to start saying, are we, <laughs> have we moved on already? Like, are you, are you pre-ordering yeah, yesterday. Already now? Yeah, it happened yesterday. Yesterday so. was their opportunity to, opportunity to say, today's the start of a new era. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, we're removing these. And they, they what they should have done, they should have put a statement out without Greg or anyone else having to kind of ask them. Exactly. They should have put the statement out saying, today's the beginning of a new era. You know, in, 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 in a way to kind of build those bridges to say, we're going to mend issues from the past and our first step we're going to remove the three Casio songs from the from playlists and from being able to be purchased online at, even at that stage they don't even have to talk about authenticity all they had to say was it's a new era we are going to try to make things better exactly surely they can recognize the issues <laughs> that they have between uh, between themselves and the fans and they didn't do that but i should say Everything that Jay, everything that Damien was just talking about about that celebratory feeling, I didn't really feel that at all up until about two or three hours ago because I only have one streaming platform, and that's Amazon Music. And on Amazon Music, those songs still existed up until about two hours ago in the UK. And I'd been telling everyone in my family, I've been telling friends of mine, oh, the songs are all going, the songs are all going, and they kept checking their devices saying. Uh, they're still here, you know. You're talking crap, and I just noticed two or three hours ago that the the Casio songs have now been removed from UK streaming platforms as well. And I did feel that celebratory feeling, which I hadn't felt, even though everyone was sharing graphics from you know Mexico and from Southeast Asia uh, and from America, people and from Australia, people were sharing those graphics until those songs had been removed from my sharing platform. It almost didn't feel real until it actually was real for me. And when it was real for me, I I was able to share that feeling that Damien just spoke about, that feeling of celebration. And tomorrow when everyone wakes up, when I'm able to talk to everyone again, and I'll ask them to check their streaming platforms and those songs won't be there, and it will be, you guys were right. And that's been such a massive kind of issue for all of us because we we navigate this world as Michael Jackson fans and the cards are stacked so heavily against us in every in every discussion because the press is so kind of has maligned him and his family and his fans for so many years. So even when we would be at work or we'd be talking to work colleagues or we'd be talking to friends, oh yeah, there were these three songs that they released or that, you know, Michael Jackson's own children said were fake. And, you know, the random people who don't really give who don't really care about Michael Jackson or Michael Jackson music, they'll look at you as if you're an idiot and like all you Michael Jackson fans are completely batshit crazy. And now we have the evidence to say, actually, here you go. Those three songs have now been removed. It took 12 years, but we got there in the end. Yeah. And, and on that note, I think we're going to wrap this round table. We're going to keep watching uh, social media to see what unfolds in the coming days. Maybe there will be a joint statement between Epic records and the estate. And you know, who knows? We don't know. We don't know where Vera's lawsuit is really going to lead in terms of the final settlement, uh, if there is one, but we will learn that in the coming days. I am really glad, though, that we could all get together, the six of us, to react and respond to and process this amazing news that the Casio tracks now do not exist 
on streaming platforms around the world. I never thought I'd say that, but I'm saying it. It's happened. In a lot of ways, it's mission accomplished. In my heart, I kind of wish I could go back to before November 2010 and re-engage and get excited about products and see Michael's legacy honored in an exciting way and really celebrate. But like many of you are saying, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready because of what was in that statement from Chuck from the MJ online team. I'm not ready because I can't feel that heart. I can't feel that that soul. I can't feel that real genuine want within the estate to respect Michael. And when that comes back, I think that's that's really the moment that I'll be re- ready to re-engage when I can feel that again, when I can feel that Michael's being honoured. Or when it changes hands and you're no longer having to say how you feel about it with the same circumstances existing because a change in the guard can change our feelings, right? Yeah. Agreed. Maybe one day. Let's go around the table and just check in where people can find our participants online. So, Damien, you've obviously got uh, an amazing project coming out in the future in in Faking Michael. Listeners, I'm sure, can't wait for that as we you know, also can't wait for that to come out. I'm sure you're hesitant to probably put a date on when that'll be coming out because you're working hard on it and, as I understand, pretty much around the clock as well. Uh, but where can people find you online and how can people get ready for Faking Michael when it comes? Okay, so to get ready for it, um, you just simply have to subscribe to it on the podcast apps. So, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you find and listen to your podcast, it's going to be there. If you subscribe, you'll be alerted when the episodes come. And like I said earlier, no clue when that will be. The project is being worked on around the clock and it's actually being produced by Dan Villalobos on this chat. So, it's not just my project. I want to make that really clear. It's, it's, a, it's a group effort and it's being produced by Dan. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you'll be finding his work all over it. it. It's from start to finish. It's Dan's masterpiece, basically. So, Faking Michael on the podcast platforms and at Damien Shields on Twitter if you want to follow me personally. But again, just to reiterate, the podcast is, is a very big collective effort and it's not just a Damien Shields thing. just wanted to make that clear because I don't think it has been made that clear yeah, understood. But without your passion, Damien, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and you know, a lot of us along the way have been involved in the journey, whether it's, you know, producing the audio or, you know, collecting interviews with people that feature in it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But- and like I said earlier with the Trojan horse stuff, it's, I mean, the MJ cast was founded around the fact that you and James, and James is a huge part of it. I mean, all of this stuff is going to be spoken about at a, at a better time. Yeah. But the involvement of people other than me is extraordinary. And I just don't like to be credited with the whole thing because literally none of it could be possible without the in the input and the support and the contributions of so many people. So, <laughs> that just needs to be said because it's the truth and people need to know that. Love it. Can't wait for it to come out. It's going to be amazing. All right, Dan, music producer, engineer, You've got great content that comes out on your platforms. Where can people find you online? Yeah, you can um, check me out on Twitter, um, at Dan. You can search for some of my music on Spotify or any platform or yeah, or on Instagram, Dan Music. Yeah, say hi. Awesome. Sounds good. Okay. 
Samar Habib of the Michael Jackson Academia Project. I love seeing your opinions come out on Twitter. They really spark my own thought processes around things. I love chatting with you. Love it every time you come on the MJ cast. Where can people find you online? Uh, bless you, Jamin. Um, you can find me on Twitter at the MJAP. Uh, that's my only social media platform now. Uh, one thing I just wanted to say, which none of us have touched on in this episode, which is really important and pertinent to the discussion that we've had today, is peace to Hannah Savage, mm-hmm. uh, who put together a two-part documentary on YouTube yeah. regarding the Cassia songs that only went live a couple of days ago. And I watched the whole thing, and it really took me back. So if this episode hasn't taken people back, those two episodes on her YouTube channel will. And there was something that she put in on the second episode right towards the end. It was the last five or ten minutes where she spoke about how if it wasn't for the fans, none of this would have ever happened. And it, it, I got quite emotional actually watching that last half of that second episode. So I just wanted to give a, a shout out to Hannah for putting that together. But yes, you can follow me at the MJAP on Twitter. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, And also Charlie Thompson. I know you're going to be waiting on your Twitter account. You're going to be wanting to see all these reactions come in directly to you. Where can people find you on Twitter? Hmm. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter at at C.E. Thompson with no P in it. But um, MJ fans may be disappointed. There's very, very little MJ content on my social media. But if you are interested in um, like corrupt local authorities in London and the home counties in England, then you'll be fascinated. Awesome. Also, people can keep a really close eye on the MJ Cast Twitter if it has a little <laughs> if it has a little C at the end. That's Charlie. <laughs> yeah, that's Charlie. Also, I am actually the true mastermind behind um, faking Michael, and <laughs> Damien doesn't even exist. He's just one of my network of characters like Deborah French, who also apparently is me. And I've just been doing two voices all night. <laughs> I love it. Uh, listen, we haven't heard from James yet. James, uh, we love it every time you come on the MJ cast and we don't talk about it enough, but you're obviously so involved at the MJ cast. The MJ cast's website wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for you having uh, over this many years, I think seven years at this point, uh, hosted the MJ Cast's website for us. So thank you very much. You're deeply involved in what we do. We love it every time you come on. Where can people find you online? Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, Mr. James 64 MR James 64. I made that name when I was really young. So, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's a privilege guys. You're awesome. Everybody listening is awesome. We can affect real change and my God, look at our fight. Like and and we're and we're moving it it's it's all worthwhile and good job everyone good job all right on that note uh if people want to subscribe to the mj cast or, or find us on social media you can just search for the mj cast on twitter on instagram on facebook we are a podcast so look for us on podcast platforms whether it's apple podcasts or spotify just type in the mj cast and subscribe we are also on youtube we release the episodes there a little bit later than we do on podcast platforms but you can subscribe to us there as well if you would like uh, i'm so grateful that we could all be together the six of us in particular, you know, uh, many of us have interacted right from the very start of this whole thing happening in 2010. Uh, and I'm glad that we can be here at, at this sort of monumental occasion of the track's 
finally coming down. Uh, here's to hoping for some some more information in the coming days and weeks uh, around why this has happened and where to next. Make sure, listeners, that you're tuning into the MJ Cast to hear about that information, and of course, subscribe to Faking Michael to hear the whole story all in one place when it's ready to come out. Thank you very much, and keep Michaeling. Thank goodness we kept this under 60 minutes like we planned. Yeah, yeah. That's a real nice uh, tight episode there. Very short. <laughs> Sorry, Carter. I just had a sudden realization that I'm never, ever going to be able to hear the lyrics killing up the life in the birds and under me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to be able to hear it ever again. It's, it's over. <laughs>